For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. Ever since the promise revealed in the garden of Genesis 3.15, God has foretold of his coming Savior, beginning with the revelation that he would crush the head of the serpent and the woman's seed would be restored to God. God has given more and more progressive revelation of his Savior. Abraham was promised the seed in whom all the nations would be blessed. God's promise would gain more clarity through Moses and Joshua and David. And whether by prophecy or typology, God's way of salvation from sin, death, and the work of the devil has always exclusively been based on the person and work of his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity to come from heaven. In the Bible, we are preaching through a gospel this morning, which is in the latter days, which we are in still. The fulfillment of his promised savior, we are in a time of fulfillment. Uh, His savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. Matthew serves as somewhat of a bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament because Matthew gives a a lot of attention to explicit fulfillment compared to the other Gospels. Matthew quotes the Old Testament almost as much as the other Gospels combined. He was a tax collector. One of his own countrymen would call him uh, a sinner. But Christ saved him during his ministry, and Matthew became one of the 12 disciples. Matthew highlights Christ's rejection and Davidic covenant or Davidic kingship throughout his book. He also highlights the teaching and preaching ministry of Christ with five discourses. He writes with more sensitivity to his countrymen as well, using Jewish phrases instead of what you see in the other gospels like the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. Matthew writes to identify who the Messiah is as do the other Gospels. Who is the Christ? Who is he? Who is this one that God has been promising from the beginning? And Matthew also reveals what he came to do and what he did. It is the good news of Christ, according to Matthew. Previously, we've been, we have seen that Christ's genealogy through his father is fulfilled according to Scripture. He is the legitimate son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. His birth was according to Scripture, and he was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit in the virgin womb of his mother Mary. Truly, he is the promised son of David, God's Messiah. This morning, I'll be focusing in chapter 2 on verses 1 through 6. The account from verses 1 through 12, which is what we read, primarily reveals the identity of Christ through the account of the Gentile Magi Magi, and how they treat Christ. But in verses 1 through 6, the focus of the Magi and Herod are on 
the whereabouts of Christ. Where is he? Therefore, I have given this sermon the title, The Birthplace of Christ the King Revealed. The sermon outline will follow the text and break up into three parts, essentially the Magi, Herod, and Scripture. From these verses, you should know that Jesus is the Christ of God. And he was born in Bethlehem according to Scripture. The main application is wherever you are, whether converted or unconverted, repent and continue if you're converted or for the first time, trust in Jesus who is the Christ. For he is the King of kings who came from heaven according to Scripture to save sinners. This morning, the first main point is the Magi ask, where is Christ the King? So if you'll read with me, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, verse 1. To begin this morning, I want to set before you the historical context of this time in Jesus' life. It was in, in the days of Herod the king. This is Herod the Great, who ruled from 34, 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And in his life and his rule ended with his death in verse 20. It says there at the middle there, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. This event of the Magi visiting and worshiping Jesus occurs some unknown time after the shepherds and after the angels worshiped Jesus in Luke chapter 2. Turn with me briefly to Luke chapter 2. I want you to see more of the account of the infancy of Christ briefly in Luke and have you understand where Matthew's context lies in the history. So Luke 2, 1 through 7, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place with Quirinius while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David. Clear text that Bethlehem is the the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. So you can see plainly Joseph's responding to this decree and he's going to Bethlehem because he's of the lineage of David and he's residing there in Bethlehem. And he did so to be registered with Mary and his betrothed wife who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Look with me at 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. 22. Now, when the days of her purification, which it was a male, so it was, I believe, 40 days. You could look in Leviticus 12 another time. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were complete, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So they're still in Bethlehem. Now look at 38. 
In coming, this is when she brings him up into Jerusalem and Simeon raises him up and blesses him. And in verse 38, we see Anna is there to bear witness too, who was also in the temple. And it says in 38, And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Next verse. So when they had performed all these, these things according to the law, they returned to Galilee in Nazareth. That, there's a time gap between 38 and 39, and that's where Matthew is occurring. It's right there between 38 and 39. That's where Matthew's, the text that we're at is occurring right there. And it, this doesn't even go over them going down to Egypt and back. So also in there is them going down to Egypt and back. So it gives you some historical context. Joseph, back to Matthew. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are residing in Bethlehem as the Magi arrive. Magi arrive in Jerusalem about four miles away. So Bethlehem is about four miles from Jerusalem. Sometime after this event, they will depart to Egypt and from there eventually return to Nazareth like we saw in Luke. However, this time in Bethlehem is important because of prophecy and typology, as we will see. So the Magi now, who are they? Let's move there. They come and ask of Christ's whereabouts. The Magi, or wise men, as it says in the NKJV, came from the east following a star in order to worship the king of the Jews. Who are they? Who are the Magi? The text gives little details as to who they are. The Greek word is magoi, which is plural for magos. There was more than one. It's not one person that came, it's plural. That's all we know. They were often experts in astrology, the interpretation of dreams, and various other occult arts. The text gives no indication whatsoever that they were kings. We three kings of Orientar is not right. <laughs> However, they obviously gave much attention to the stars and astrology since they had identified a star ri rising on the horizon from their own land as being the star of Christ, the king of the Jews. They were Gentiles from the east, likely Persia or Babylonia. They had traveled many days, anywhere from 400 to 700 miles, to worship the newborn king of the Jews, the Christ. It would be like riding a camel to, from here to Mobile, Alabama. That's the short version. Or from here to Houston, Texas. In other words, they were certain the Christ was born and only needed to be found. They were not confused about that. How? It's a good question. How? The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us. The text does not allow us to identify the, uh, now moving, uh, I want to get into that, but let me go to the star. I'm trying to get us to stay in the text and on the text with addressing who they are so that we don't have running thoughts. The same with the star. The text also does not allow us to identify the exact nature of the star. Matthew reveals that the Magi said it was his star. You can see that in the second part of verse 2. 
And it was likely that they saw it on the horizon from their own land because of the word that they used for east. Some have conjectured and and even argued that it was a solar phenomenon and a celestial event. But this does not explain the behavior of the star in verse 9. Look at verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east, that same star, now they're they're four miles away from Bethlehem. Like if you're going to Bethlehem, Bethlehem's, you went past it to get to Jerusalem. It was on your left. So you're there in Jerusalem, and now the star's going back that way. And so, so it went before them until, so until per, per, supposes some distance or time. So the star's doing something till it stops, till it came and stood over where the young child was, enough to where they could go and know exactly where he was. So it's, it can't be a mere celestial event in the, the stars. As one pastor said, though, if you will believe that Christ was conceived in a virgin womb, you should have no issue with the miraculous nature of the star. God who created all things, act nihilo, out of nothing, is sovereign in creation and providence. Stars and lights behave the way that they do simply because God is pleased to will them to do that such way. If he wants stars moving around all the time, they will move around all the time. The Bible is full of supernatural, extraordinary signs, and we are in no need to reason in such a way as to neglect the supernatural nature of the star. Moving on, the text does not reveal how the Magi knew to be to even be looking for the king of the Jews. There's a lot of that's not said. However, they do not know, uh, I'm sorry, some have proposed that they knew of the king of the Jews by oral tradition passed down from the time of Daniel during the exile. We do not know for sure. What we know is that God revealed the coming of his Messiah to these magi of the East and designed a star to lead them to Christ. The Magi traveled to Jerusalem, the center of Israel, where the temple was. However, they do not know precisely where Christ is. So they ask, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Herod gets word of their presence and question So they must have asked either officials or prominent people in Jerusalem for Herod to get word. They were looking for the true infant king of the Jews. They had no doubts about the fact of the birth of Christ the king, and they only sought help in finding him. The basis for their question is that they had seen his star and they were resolved to worship him. Where is he? Because we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Let us move to why the Magi sought Christ. They came to worship Christ. In verse 2 at the end, it's, you can see that. We have come to worship him. And in verse 11, it says, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child 
with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. Their purpose in all of this was worship. This is why they came. We have come to worship him. This was the underlying reason for even asking where he is. Verse 2 says that they asked where he was for, because we have seen a star and because we have come to worship him, as I had said. These Gentiles knew enough of his person and office to know that they must come and worship him. They are the first fruits of sorts, foreshadowing Christ's kingdom made of people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. People will come from all over into Christ's kingdom. Think of all the Bible reveals of Christ and the sensibility of their journey and its intents. Oh, if only all knew something of the glory of Jesus, God the Son incarnate, who can compare to his splendor and majesty? He is from everlasting to everlasting, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. He is that mediator promised since the beginning. He is Jesus who truly and powerfully saves men from their sins. He is the vicarious suffering servant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is meek and lowly and bids all come to him who are heavy laden with sin. He is righteous and omnipotent and saves chief sinners from their sins. He is the resurrection and life and sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father. All creation groans awaiting his return at the final resurrection. He is the Son of God and the Christ of God. Where do you stand with Christ this morning? Have you come to him? Do you know him? Do you worship him in your heart and life? Imagine for a moment if you were there in Persia or Babylon and offered to go along with the Magi. What would be your heart's response to the prospect of worshiping Christ in person? To those who truly trust him, he is their all in all and they love to worship him. And the worship of God's people goes beyond a simple willingness to prostrate oneself before Christ, but to a whole life of loving evangelical worship and obedience. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, worthy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that may prove what is good, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let us move to the next major point, Herod. Upon hearing of their inquiry, Herod is troubled and inquires of Christ's whereabouts from the chief priests and scribes. In verses 3 and 4, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. According to multiple historians and commentators, Herod was born about 74 BC. He claimed to be born of wealthy Jewish nobility, but was actually born of an Edomite and an Arab. He was made king of Judea by a Roman senate and granted an army. 
He pretended to practice Jewish religion and built the temple in Jerusalem, but he was also devoted to Hellenistic culture and built a pagan temple in Caesarea. Josephus speaks of him as crafty and cruel, and if you remember, Jesus said that fox, Herod. The Jews generally hated him. In in an obsession to maintain his throne, Herod murdered his favorite wife, three of his sons, various in-laws, and countless prominent citizens. Later in Matthew 2, verse 16, if you read that, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were born in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under. This gives a basis for why Herod was troubled. He believed his throne was under attack and taken from him. The text says that all the Jews were troubled with him. Since the Jews generally hated Herod, the being troubled of all Jerusalem was not for the same reason as Herod. It even shows that in the grammar, in a sense, by separating Herod from all Jerusalem. If you look at two, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I deduce that they were troubled with Herod in this context of Christ's appearance. They were troubled by Herod's murderous tendencies and possibly, as Calvin says, they were troubled with any semblance of unrest in the eyes of Rome. Therefore, they feared rather than rejoiced at the coming of their own Messiah. Herod stands as a stark contrast to the Gentile Magi. He is in bondage to his own lusts for power and prestige. The very idea of losing such things troubles him. Herod may be a king in Judea, but he is an impotent enemy of God's kingdom. Had he but knew God's justice and his sin, he would have been waiting for Christ just as Simeon and Anna and would have rejoiced with them. Let me make a brief application from Herod. For those of you who love their place in this life and you care nothing for Christ, do you not see yourself in Herod? You may not be a murderer in the same way, nor a high-ranking official, but do you not see that the claims and commands of Christ are odious to you? Why? Do you even know why? God has already said why. Each has gone his own way and will not have Christ to rule over them. Their mindset is carnal and not of the Spirit. You have been godless your whole life, and the prospect of turning from your beloved sin to Christ for salvation makes little to no sense. Rather, it is a threat to who you are, your goals, and your life as it is. Dear sir or ma'am, you are not good or righteous. Deceit is in your heart and on your lips. From covetousness to pride to anger, sin is your life and you are evil in the sight of God. But 
God has sent his son into the world and made that clear from this very text with the Magi and Herod so that you would know who to turn to for salvation. Why would you die that eternal death? For God saves his enemies, even ones such as you. Think of his kindness even now in hearing these things. Come to Christ and he will give you rest for your soul. In our text now, we see Herod gathers the chief priests and scribes. You can see that in verse 4. He gathers them and he inquires of them. Essentially, Herod gathers the current high priest and all the former high priests plus a number of other leading priests, including the heads of the 24 main divisions of priests, and Herod gathers the scribes as well who were experts in the law, many of which were Pharisees and teachers of the law. So you can see with him gathering so many together how it gives an idea as to how much he's troubled. He wants to find out where Christ is. And we can see from later in the chapter that so that he can put him to death in his craftiness. They gave a clear response as to his whereabouts from Micah 5.2. Having all those people give the same account and be so clear on the same point lets you know that that prophecy can't get any clearer. From the text, however, the text from any of these verses and any of the other gospels reveal that the chief priests or scribes sought to find and worship Christ that they did not seek. They were content to point him out for others, but not go themselves. So they had the text, they knew the right things, but they didn't go. There's nothing in the Bible that says that they went to worship. We have the shepherds, we have the angels, we have the magi, but we see nothing of the Jews besides these shepherds. We don't see Herod, we don't see chief priests, we don't see Pharisees. And now let me make an application considering them. Perhaps your response to Christ is similar to the chief priests and scribes. Perhaps you know much about Christ and the gospel and scripture. Perhaps you were raised in a Christian home, and I can't tell you how many people think they're Christians simply because they were raised in a Christian home. That does not make you a Christian. You must be born again. God must do a radical, supernatural, heart-changing work upon your heart. He must take out a heart of stone and put a heart of flesh into your heart. You cannot just assent to things and think that you're a Christian. It's radical. It bears fruit in your life. Perhaps you know much about Christ and the gospel and scripture. Perhaps you were raised in a Christian home but have not yet repented and believed in Christ. Are you one who knows that Christ is the only way? And can you point others to him but have not come yourself? Stop seeking honor which comes from men and seek the honor that comes from the only God by submitting to the righteousness of God in Christ. Do you suppose that certain people are worse sinners than you? No, unless you repent, you will perish. For God is of too pure eyes to behold sin, to go on trusting in yourself and give a mere mental assent to Christ is false religion, and it will result in eternal death. 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time in your life and come to him while he may be found. The next major point is the scripture reveals where Christ is, where Christ is the king. In verses five and six, so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Let's turn to Micah. Turn to Micah 3. Chapters 3 through 6 in Micah are prophecies delivered by Micah against wicked rulers on the one hand and God's promise to deliver his people on the other hand. In context, northern Israel is exiled during Micah's ministry. And as Judah is involved under Hezekiah, Micah is ministering to Judea or Judah. Micah witnesses many sins in Judah. And while there was an exile, some of Samaria and Israel were coming down to Judah. And Micah witnesses sins in Judah, and he gives God's warnings and promises accordingly. So I want you to see that from Micah. I'm going to read 1 and 2. And I said, uh, Micah 3, 1 and 2, And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones? Look out, look at verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time because they have done been They have been evil in their deeds. Now go to nine. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. God through Micah indicts Judah's leaders and rulers in chapter three and then prophesies in chapters four and five of his future deliverance coming from his deliverer. If you look at Micah 4, I'm going to read 1 through 5. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. That's the days of the coming of Christ of which we're still in. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the hills and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, 
He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no, no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You can see the Lord prophesying through Micah about the latter days of his deliverance and peace. If you look at Micah 4.11, and I'm going to read all the way through 5.2. Now, also, many nations have gathered against you. So, many nations have gathered against Judah. Who say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel. For he will gather them like sheaves into the... to the threshing floor. Arise, thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Now gather your troops, gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid seeds against us, They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek, Hezekiah. He's getting them, he's preparing them, he's warning them, he's indicting them, he's also promising, and now he's preparing them. And now he's going back to promise with two. He's saying, get ready, they're coming. The The latter days are coming, right? Trust in the Lord now. The cheek of your judge will be struck with a rod, but... I am going to give you victory. And then he tells them this prophecy of those latter days again in verse 2. He says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. God promised his promised deliverer will be born in Bethlehem. You can plainly see that. And Bethlehem was not a, a, a affluent place. It was a place of means, menial uh, means. And that's the point is historically and physically, it's not much, but spiritually, it's everything. Because out of this place, the Son of God will come. Bethlehem was the birthplace of David as well. If you look at Ruth 4.11. Actually, don't, don't go there for time's sake. Go to uh, 1 Samuel 17. Ruth is just to show you that Obed was um, a son in Bethlehem, and he ended up, David came from that line. But 1 Samuel 17, you can plainly see, as we saw in Luke, the birthplace of David. Luke 17, 12 says, 
Now, David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. That's where David was born. And David was a type of Christ. Look with me at Isaiah 11. I want you to see how the Holy Spirit uses the word David when it comes to Christ. First of all, we can plainly see in this text, Isaiah 11, 1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That's speaking of the Christ. But it doesn't say the Christ. It says a rod. A rod is what grows out of like a, a stump or a stem. It's like you've seen plants grow. A rod shoots out in one direction. Whether it is a stump or it's a healthy plant, you just see the rod shoot out. And what he's saying is out of the bloodline of Jesse which is the father of David, will come a particular rod. It will become a, a branch. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That's speaking of the promised Messiah. That's just a prophecy that, it will, that the bloodline of Christ will be that of David. Um, but I want to show you some more typology by looking now at Jeremiah. Verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 9. Jeremiah existed and wrote long after David existed. And chapter 30 is dealing with the restoration of Israel and Judah. And in verse 9, it says, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. That's not David. That's speaking of the Christ in the words of David because he's a, David was a type of Christ. Look at Ezekiel 34. And verse 23. Uh, starting in verse 11, God is going to say, uh, speak about him being the true shepherd. And then later in the same chapter, in verse 23, this is what he says, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. He's speaking of the Christ in the language of he's David because David was patterned after him and it's clearly tying what will come of him was already foreshadowed in the life and prophecies revolving around David. So I wanted you to see that because God doesn't just prophesy where the Christ would be born 
he patterns them to be born after the same place as his type. In other words, the type, David, he made David be born in Bethlehem because that's where he chose to have his son born so that everybody would know this is the Christ. That's the same David that, that was the son of David will come. My son, the, the, I will shepherd them. He says in Ezekiel, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. That shepherd will come from Bethlehem, and he, he is the David to come. You get all these layers in the Bible. It's, it's, it's abounding of the certainty of our salvation in Christ. You don't have to have a blind faith whatsoever. God is making it so clear who it is you need to trust in, who you need to come to, who you need to believe in, who you need to follow, who you need to deny yourself from and go to. God's promised deliverer will be born in Bethlehem. This prophecy was ever was clear even for the chief priests and scribes who awaited a descendant of David. Men who didn't even know the Lord, it was clear to them. Matthew 2.6, if you go back to Matthew, is the Holy Spirit revealing that that prophecy of Micah 5.2 has been fulfilled so that you might know and be assured in the one in whom you believe, Jesus, the Lord's Christ. The Holy Spirit is making it abundantly clear through Matthew so that you will know and be assured in the one in whom you believed in. The, the, the Micah text also reveals something of the nature or the office of the Christ. From the prophecy, it specifically reveals that God's promised deliverance would not only come from his Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, but also that he would be a ruler from everlasting. He is none other than the divine son of God who would rule and govern in the latter days of the new covenant. Upon his resurrection, Jesus said that all authority was given to him on earth and, on he and in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. He reigns now in heaven and has promised to return. He will reign until his enemies are made his footstool and forever. In conclusion, we have seen that God led the Gentile Magi in heart by the Spirit. They were coming to worship. And in sight by the star, they came from the east to worship Christ. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, they asked where the infant Christ was again in order to worship him. Herod, on the other hand, was troubled in his self-idolatry and covetousness, and he gathered the chief priests and scribes to learn where the Christ would be born. Again, he was troubled in his hatred of the Lord. The chief priests and scribes turned to Scripture to answer where Christ was to be born, but they did not come to worship him. They remained unmoved by the Magi's revelation and did not seek to worship. God fulfilled his promise that his Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And in so doing, the Holy Spirit through Matthew has most clearly identified the Christ, that promised Messiah of old to be Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem. 
And as Simeon said in Luke 2, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And as Matthew revealed, his name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Therefore, children of God, remember the prophecy fulfilled as it identifies again who your Messiah is. And turn not to the left or to the right, but to him in all things. As Paul said in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Remember the Magi and imitate them in heart and principle. Since Christ is your Lord and Savior, continue to worship him in spirit and in truth, your life being a living sacrifice. Therefore, though, to those who do not know the Lord, see yourself in Herod or the chief priests and scribes or perhaps others that you have read of recently, See what I'm doing to show you how it looks when someone doesn't truly believe in Christ. You have all kinds of types in those in the Bible. Uh, we're just looking at Herod and the chief priests. Turn from your sin to God and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not persist in Herod's likeness, loving your own sin and life and threatened by the Christ claims. Rather, See past this life to the next, for wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And that righteousness is in Christ alone because it is his righteousness that is imputed to you when you trust him. Do not persist in chief priest's likeness, content to know the truth in mind, but never committing to it. Repent of hypocrisy or apathy and unbelief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must know that he is both true and worthy from this text this morning. God said of him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Come to his feet and kiss the son lest he be angry with you. Come to the Christ for he is meek and lowly in heart and he will give rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord God and Father in heaven, we praise you for your Son, our Messiah. We worship you. We worship you, O Holy Son and O Holy Spirit. We praise you for your coming. We praise you, Father, for your sending. And we praise you, Spirit, for your enabling us by regenerating us to believe I pray that this morning that sin would be conquered and that you would redeem those who do not know you. I pray those that have been freed and their sins have been forgiven in the finished work of Christ, Lord, that you would renew their minds and refresh their hearts with the certainty of who they have trusted in. Give them boldness in fighting sin, Lord, and remind them of your work. Give them confidence in the battle, Lord, that they are justified because of your work and who you are. I pray, Lord, that they would love you, that they would outshine the Magi and worship him. Amen.
and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.